0: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML, Jane Coracoba, founder of the Child Welfare Pact, uh, McMaster University, allowing 20 foster children to get their first degree or graduate degree at the school without paying for tuition. Uh, The Child Welfare Political Act Committee, Canada, made the announcement uh, with Southern Ontario Universities on Wednesday, or with the university on Wednesday. To talk more about this, Jane is with us now. Jane, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
1: Yes, thank you for having me on.
0: This sounds like a great idea. Uh, first of all, how did it all start and, and, and where did this, uh, how, how, did the, how did people come up with this idea and, and execute this?
1: Sure. Well, it actually all started in British Columbia. Vancouver Island University realized that people who had grown up in the foster care system really don't get a fair shot at life and social mobility is not so accessible for them. So what they ended up doing there is they created tuition waivers. For anyone who is raised in care without age limit because when we leave foster care at age 18 i actually left care at 16 you're basically graduating into abject poverty you're trying to survive day to day a lot of youth in care will experience early pri- early parenthood homelessness sometimes criminal justice system involvement it might take a minute to get your life on track before you can take advantage of post-secondary so this is what the real innovation is there's no age limits when you're ready The opportunity is available for you. When Vancouver Island University had flagged that for us, I was like, well, why don't we bring it to the rest of the country? So my organization started working with universities and colleges in Ontario. And now we also have schools who have implemented in Nova Scotia, as well as Newfoundland. And we have McMaster's the eighth to come on board, but the first big one in the GTHA. And uh, they've added another 20 spots. So far, we've negotiated 150 tuition-free places at 11 institutions in three provinces, and we're not stopping until they're all on board.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Um, you said you were in foster care till 16. Can you share anything about your story? How did you make it, per se?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I entered care around when I was age six. I went into care for sort of the usual reasons, which is typically some combination of abuse and or neglect. Um, I bounced around a few homes, which is a very common experience as well. I had probably about maybe five or six placements, if I'm remembering correctly. That experience is pretty hard on a child. You don't have a lot of stability. You don't feel like you fit anywhere. And no one's really fighting for your future at the end of the day. So I elected to leave early. Most foster kids are evicted at age 18. I left at 16. They provide you a very small allowance to survive, it was $663 when I was aging out, but that allowance goes until age 21. It's about $800 or $900 now. And with all of that, you're supposed to turn it into being a fully credentialed adult way before you expect that from anyone else who can grow up and care. So it's definitely just challenging, and the cards are stacked against you. Uh, you need to have a lot of perseverance, but that's an unfair burden to put on a population who has so little to begin with. And that's why this tuition... Um, break. Essentially, you get free tuition at these institutions if you have care experience. Helps to level the playing field and give opportunities to people who've had so few.
0: What is the response when you you present these to foster kids that wouldn't have this opportunity?
1: Oh, so like just thrilled. I have someone on my team who's presently a McMaster's undergraduate student and she, she's just saying like, you know what, this takes immense pressure off people while they're trying to level up and set their life straight. And she she's one of the few that made it. In Ontario, um, we have about a 1,000 youth who age out every year. We know 60% drop out of high school like I did. I was lucky because I was able to apply as a mature student to community college at 18 and then transfer to university. I then went on, did my master's at London School of Economics, and I'm now a doctoral candidate at Western. So I personally know how important to academia is and uh, and yeah and so out of the 400 who have graduated high school if American studies bear out only 20% even attempt to go to post-secondary despite being qualified that is terrible in the general population at 60% try to go right so we really need to make it a smoother barrier-free pathway for these kids to be able to access social mobility for themselves and it shouldn't be time limited either, given that the challenges they experience.
0: How do you, considering what you have accomplished, and now you're paying it, you're paying it forward. How do you look back at that period in your life prior to university, or, or even college?
1: Right. So prior to university, just growing up in the care system, I, like I think the best word to describe it is just stressful, and you know, and it is lonely at times because you don't. Know, a lot of your peers aren't sharing sort of those challenges that you are while you're going through the formative years Um, in college and university. I mean, I was lucky my biological grandfather stepped forward and ended up paying my undergraduate tuition. But that said, I really had no resources beyond that either. So I'm not sure I was eating right. Even I'm not like it was super stressful to think about rent, especially in the last year. So you know, it's just a lot of extra barriers that end up on somebody who has so few resources to draw upon in the first place. And why someone even wants to put themselves through those additional challenges in the short term for long term gain is also hard, right? And that's why maybe we're seeing so few who are even bothering to try.
0: If there's someone listening out out there that wants to be a part of this, where do they go? What should they do?
1: Yeah, so if you grew up in care, um, and you are Um, a crown ward. A lot of the schools are restricting the eligibility there to begin, but we're growing the eligibility criteria with time. So if you grew up in care, it's always worth calling each institution. They're listed on our website, which is www.childwelfarepac.com under our work. So check out the schools and the contact information. Call them. They'll work with you. Some of them are more open than others. For example, McMaster is actually also considering graduate degrees. So that's a very big deal. Mm. And, um, and, yeah, and connect directly. Now, if you're a community member who believes pe- vulnerable people in society deserve a fair chance to compete in their adult lives, then consider donating to the schools that we've already negotiated these opportunities at.
0: Jane Karavkova has been with us, president, or sorry, founder of the Child Welfare Pack. 20 current and former foster kids will get free tuition at McMaster uh, University, social sharing, and this is going on in various universities, and if you can help them out, they would greatly appreciate that. Jane, thank you for the time. Good luck with all of this.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for raising awareness on it
0: you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml all right let's bring in uh susie braithwaite this is the time when we talk about uh, uh local businesses and such and how they're uh how they're uh doing during a global pandemic she is the executive director of the hamilton international village BIA, and is with us now susie thanks for the time i hope you're doing well
2: Hi, Scott. Thank you. <laughs>
0: hey, I, you know, I'd be, uh, I, I have to ask you, what are your thoughts of uh, LRT coming back onto oh, the table this past week?
2: Well, oh. <laughs> that's a long, that's a long answer for me. I, I dedicated 10 years of my life to LRT before it was originally canceled. So I'm a little bit more sensitive about it than most. I'm waiting for them to say, Shovels are going in the ground on this date, and then that's when I'm going to give my attention to this again, because it's been such a up and down, back and forth thing. I just want to hear yes or no, let's do this.
0: So um, yeah, I guess at this point you've been through this dance so many times. Uh, your feet are probably sore <laughs> from Very it sore. <laughs> sore yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, how is it going for the international village and and the uh, the merchants down there and the services and such? Uh, how are they faring during all of this?
2: You know, it's been really uh, difficult. Obviously, I think they're hanging on from the from the businesses that I've been able to touch base with. They are hanging on with the skin of their teeth. They are praying that this ends soon, and they are doing everything that they can to keep their businesses afloat. So obviously, it's a very volatile situation we're dealing with right now, especially with we don't know which um, zone we're heading back into next week and how that will affect everybody. So everything just seems to be up in the air right now. But they are strong. They're doing what they can. Obviously, some of the subsidies from the government are helping them. But, you know, really, it's a tough situation. And I'm very scared as to how long these lockdowns will go on for, how long businesses won't be able to operate at their full capacities and what will come of
0: that. Uh, Are are certain uh, businesses uh, doing better or being able to handle this better than others are?
2: I think businesses who have uh, ebbed and flowed with it. So businesses who have maybe moved some of their stuff onto online and recognize that that's an important aspect to surviving this pandemic. Um, you know, I think the ones that have thought outside the box and maybe created some programming around their businesses that are more suitable to what the market is calling for right now have, I think restaurants are really hurting and I'm very concerned about the future of restaurants. I mean, their overhead costs alone are so high and to only be depending on takeout and delivery right now is just, it's very scary.
0: Um, you know, not to, to dwell on the LRT thing, but I know a lot of concern of your uh, merchants were the disruption uh, to the downtown core. Um, uh, I guess there's no really good way to look at this, is there?
2: To look at LRT or?
0: Well, or even the disruption that this might cause when they start it all up again.
2: Yeah, honestly it's scary because if we make it through this pandemic okay for them to only tear it up with a big dig I don't even know how we wrap our heads around that the what the one positive is I think they've had good practice at what they may be facing and the struggles that they may be facing but timing wise I mean they're gonna have to be really careful with this and really generous to the businesses for them to survive it it's it's a big issue for sure and I'm very concerned so Again, all these things are up in the air right now. I think we're just in this sort of uh, survival mode of taking it day by day, seeing what comes down the hatch from the government, how we can work with that and just, you know, going with what we can. But it's definitely, again, a very volatile situation. And I am, I am not, I'm not going to lie. I'm very concerned about the future of small business. You know, they've gone a little bit quiet. I've talked to several of my colleagues across the province and it's really hard, you know, the city sending out surveys and, If you do get a chance as a small business to fill these surveys out, I think it's so important because they need to they need this information to to um, come up with programming and subsidies and all these things to help them. But unfortunately, they're just not getting the answers that they need right now, because I think everybody's scared and everybody's kind of checked out and, you know, in their own personal struggles right now. So it's a really it's nothing we've ever dealt with before. It's nothing we could have ever planned for to see coming. So again, I think it's just the survival mentality that everybody's having right now.
0: What sort of information would the these surveys be gathering?
2: Um, they're looking at you know, did you use any of the subsidies throughout this? Are you using them? How are they helping you? Do you foresee your business surviving this? You know, what kind of percentage of revenue have you lost or gained? Are you sustaining? Um, I think it's just sort of useful for future planning um, and. Hopefully from there, you know, the city will be able to gather their stats to move forward with this. But we I know ourselves, even our own BI has put out some surveys and they're just not getting the reception that they normally do. I think people are fatigued. You know, we talk yeah. all the time about the general public being fatigued. Small business, I think more than anybody is fatigued. Maybe maybe healthcare workers on top, obviously but the amount of rigmarole they've been th- put through the ups and downs and the investing in personal protective equipment and the, then being told to close down again and then right before Christmas. And it's just, it's been a real roller coaster. and I think everyone is just exhausted right now. I know myself, it's hard every day to get yeah. up to keep yourself pushing forward in a positive momentum. I'm doing my best to sort of plan for things for the vehicle when we are back up and open and, People will be hopefully coming back down, but it's really hard to know where to put your, your energy right now. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you're hearing it from all ends, from business too. You're sort of the liaison. So uh, I'm sure you're getting uh, a, a lot of feedback, uh, and most of it negative, into what, what, what's what been going on. You talked about the future. How optimistic are you about the summer and once the days are longer, people getting out, that sort of thing?
2: I am trying to stay optimistic. I think that human nature is that when you haven't been able to have something for a long time, you're going to want to go after that. So I'm hoping that people will be, as I've said to you before, very thoughtful with where they're spending their hard-earned money moving forward um, and trying to infuse some of that back into these parts of the economy that we've lost. Like look at Theater Aquarius in my BIA. They haven't been open for close to a year now. That's that's huge for them. Um, and so hopefully people will start when this is over to come back to places like theater and dining out and shopping small and keeping the local economy going, because that is really the foundation of our economy. And I think it's so important that people are, you know, it's easy, like I said before, to click on Amazon. But what I have been doing through this whole thing is asking myself, is do it. Can I buy this online on Amazon or can I take a second and search for it somewhere in a small business and purchase it through that? And I think it has worked for me and I feel like I've been doing my part to contribute to the local economy throughout this. And I hope that more people would be doing the same. So again, it's just not always convenience. It's about keeping people with food on their tables and feeding their families. These are our neighbors who operate these businesses. These aren't big corporations up in t- desks on the tower, right? So it's really important that I think our mentality around uh, retail and dining and all those things changes, and I'm hoping and optimistic that when this, when we get the green light and everything's up and at them, people will come back full force, and we'll see sort of, you know, everybody keeps comparing it to the Roaring Twenties. I don't know if it's going to be that. <laughs> that,
0: <laughs> that
2: would be ideal, obviously, but... I do hope there's a renaissance uh, when it comes to, you know, shop- shopping small, for sure.
0: I know people are just talking about spirit, but just think of it. We're thinking, hey, hopefully it'll be like the 20s again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when this all started, Susie, there was a big push to support local. That was we were really trying to hammer that home. Has that message become fatigued as well?
2: I think the message has always been fatigue. We've talked about that amongst colleagues for years now. Shop local, shop local. You see it everywhere. It's, it's a little bit overused. I think the thing is, is that one of the things that has pushed people to uh, change their way of operations has been the whole online. You know, throughout this, the only way that a lot of businesses have been able to survive is shifting their operations to being able to buy online. We launched Ontario's first e-commerce marketplace from a BIA that was owned and operated by the IA last summer. It's, you know, it's doing pretty good. We see the businesses that are using it doing quite well. A a lot of the individual businesses have used the digital Main Street grants and started their own components. So I think the way of purchasing has shifted to online and I think that will probably continue once this is over. Um, But yeah, it's just really trying to, to, to ebb and flow with this and it's not easy because it changes from one day to the next, that's for sure.
0: Susie Braithwaite with us, Executive Director of the Hamilton International BIA, International Village, BIA. And, of course, Susie reminding everybody to shop local and remember those uh, that are supporting our downtown core uh, during a global pandemic. Susie, thank you for the time. Good luck with all this. Be well.
2: Thanks, Scott. You too.
0: <laughs> Getting outdoors to benefit our physical and mental health is uh, vital, especially right now. As uh, people try to find other things to do by themselves, Uh, outdoors, winter, you know where that's going, Uh, tobogganing, snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, and ice skating. Recently, there's been incidents of people falling through the ice on waterways, some needing to be rescued. Uh, No natural ice service is 100% safe, and venturing out uh, unprepared can be. Uh, deadly. I know in our neighborhood, uh, the kids are looking for any piece of ice they can find. Uh, and, of course, that has caused uh, some great concern. Let's bring in Shannon Scully Pratt, First Aid Swimming and Water Safety Representative for the Red Cross and is with us now. Shannon, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
3: I am. Thank you for asking. It's such a beautiful time of year to see the sun shining for us.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful out there today. Here, that's for sure, and, and great to uh, to get out and do some winter sports uh, if you're dressed for it and all the right pre- preparations and such. Uh, obviously, we're in a cold snap right now. We've been through one uh, for a while, and I know with uh, having kids, uh, especially uh, you know, used to playing hockey at this time of the year and in with their teams and organizations and such. Uh, obviously, don't have that now, but uh, a lot more and more people uh, we have seen going to a natural ice and. Uh, near us, Coots Paradise, one of those places where, uh, you know, you see lots of uh, people out there uh, skating and partaking in winter activity uh, as soon as the, the weather permits. But uh, how, how tricky, how risky is all of this, Shannon?
3: Well, as you mentioned earlier, Scott, the ice is never 100% safe, but there are some tips and tricks that we can uh, think about before we head on to the ice to make sure that we are doing our part to stay safe Um, And one is knowing the depth of the ice, how much ice is on that water. And there's a lot of factors to the ice and how it forms because it forms differently every single year. So even if uh, you were out there skating on that pond or on that waterfront area last year, it may look a lot different this year. So understanding how much ice is there is trick number one and uh, for walking or skating alone you need at least 15 centimeters of ice thickness and when you bring on larger groups skating parties having some hockey games um, fishing that kind of stuff you're looking for at least 20 centimeters of ice Uh, the motorized vehicles like snowmobiles and bringing your you know atvs out and even vehicles on the ice you're looking for 25 centimeters or um, even stronger than that
0: uh, and how, what's the best way to figure that out? How do you measure that?
3: A lot of times uh, there'll posted signs where local authorities have been checking the ice But to be honest, it's really up to you to keep yourself safe. And so there are different ways that you can check for the ice thickness. And one of them is is taking a pole or or a wedge where you chip into the ice and you measure the thickness of the ice as you go. You should be drilling holes into the ice or stabbing holes into the ice and measuring every 5 to 10 metres as you move out uh, into the open water. And that's that's something that you can use even a stick um, to do. We don't uh, suggest you throw a rock and 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 uh, vary it based on that but you definitely want to make sure you're getting into the ice and and just seeing um you know how deep it goes down
0: and the best way to do that and the best way to do that is just to get a drill and drill through it isn't it
3: Absolutely, absolutely, and we don't suggest that you do any of that without wearing a flotation device, um, number one, to keep yourself safe, yeah. Yeah.
0: What about different thicknesses of ice? So uh, is it thicker closer to shore? Is it thicker uh, farther out near an island? Obviously, it can change depending on where you are on the water surface.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Usually, you find that the ice will form faster along the shorelines and then as you move out, it develops more but there's a lot of ice factors there. It uh, really depends on the depth of the water and the size of the body of water and the movement underneath because often we forget that fast moving water uh, doesn't allow ice to form the same way. There are other factors, um, like you were saying, if there's rocks or logs or docks around, then it um, attracts the sun and it becomes harder for that area to freeze. So Depending on the colour of the ice, that's a really good indicator of the strength. So if it's clear blue, that's your strongest ice. If it has uh, a white opaque or it's snowy ice, then that's only half as strong as blue ice is. And it's because when it freezes, the snow actually, the wet snow actually freezes and forms into ice. So there's air pockets in there. Um, When you're looking at grey ice, that means that there's presence of water close underneath. So you're looking for the blue Thick, strong ice.
0: So, and and sometimes, uh, if there's a freeze and then lots of snow, they'll form like a insulation of snow, uh, an insulation uh, point uh, between the snow and ice, and you could actually get ice, uh, water on the surface of the ice, but below the snow.
3: But below the snow, absolutely. And we know that snow isolates and keeps things warm longer underneath. So the freezing period takes longer, and when we have fun weather that we had at the beginning of the season where we had freezing and then thawing and freezing, that really weakens the ice as well. So it's really important to drill into that ice and see the depths before you go on.
0: Uh, Obviously, it's been extremely cold now. Can that be a a false sense of security?
3: Absolutely. Uh, Making sure the ice is the only way the depths of the ice is the only way of knowing for sure. And we forget things like motor vehicles going on the ice actually create shock waves, which can weaken it. Um, and you see a lot of ice start to form in motions where they move upwards and there's chunks and pieces. And there's also holes that people have gone out fishing and yeah. they've drilled their hole and they've used those fishing holes and then they abandon those holes and they leave them open. So there's a lot of um, ways that you can get into a dangerous situation. And one of the things that I always say is avoid ice at night um, and when snowing, when visibility is low because you can't see what's actually around you. Um, And making sure that you're telling someone when you're going on the ice and when you're expected to come back. Um, something else that's really important that we forget to do, even though you think you know it, just reviewing what you do if you fall into the ice. is. That really- was going
0: to be my next question, Shannon. So uh, that's, you know, the precautions that you should take before you even head out there. What if you are out there and you fall through? What should you do?
3: First and foremost is your breath. And uh, when you fall through the ice, you don't want your first breath to be a gulp of cold water. Ooh. So if you, can, if you can catch your breath, and try to relax, that is really helpful. Calling for help as soon as you can catch your breath is key so someone knows that you're in need of assistance turn yourself towards shore. I know it sounds silly, but take that time to turn yourself uh, towards shore because that ice is more stable. And when you reach forward um, with your arms out onto the ice, try not to push down like you're climbing out of a pool. You want to kick your feet and slide yourself across the ice and then be able to roll away. And that's you bring up a
0: valid way. point here, and I just want to reinforce that, that when you are down and you're trying to put your arms out, kick your feet to bring y- your body up out of the water.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You, your body will be buoyant. Your clothes usually will help you stay a little bit more buoyant. So if you can get your arms out to your armpits onto the ice, then it is a lot easier to bring your body horizontal and kick yourself out, on, out onto safer ice.
0: So uh, once you're there what how do you again finish uh, what you were saying?
3: Yeah so you want once you've got your body horizontal you want to kick yourself um, out of that ice and then you want to be able to crawl or roll away from the edge, keeping your arms and legs spread out to disperse your weight as much as possible and make your way to safer to safer um, ice. Once you're in a safer spot definitely readjust and look for sure again and make sure that you're going in the right way. And you want to be, um, you want to be cautious because frostbite and hypothermia are, are things that can set in and you want to be aware of what those are. I recommend downloading the Canadian Red Cross app where you can learn about, um, frostbite and hypothermia, but you can also even call 911 directly from the app. So if someone does go through the ice, you have that option right there.
0: Uh, how about, uh, you know, once you, this happens to you, I mean, it's shock, it's disorienting.
3: It is. And you want to get your body, um, warm as soon as possible. Uh, making sure that you're removing any of those cold, wet, um, articles of clothing and wrapping your body in, in, dry, in dry, uh, towels and blankets and slowly reheat your body. Um, so using, um, you know, warm, uh, warm water bottles, uh, warming blankets to slowly heat your, your system back up to its normal temperature.
0: Wow. A website we can go to to find out more about all of this, Shannon.
3: Absolutely. Check us out at the Canadian Red Cross website. Even if you just Google in uh, Red Cross ice safety, you'll find lots of tips on snowmobile safety, uh, f- ice fishing safety, and just general fishing, uh, general ice safety.
0: Uh, Shannon Scully Pratt has been with us First Aid Swimming and Water Safety Representative for the Red Cross a reminder as we head outside and enjoy the winter that we've got to be very, very cautious uh, in regard to the ice and uh, of course the Red Cross has lots of information on that on their website and be informed before you head out Shannon, thank you for the time be well
3: Be well and have a fun, safe, family day weekend, everyone.
0: The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.